This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 44. Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. And the title of this sermon is A Great Contrast. Mark 12, 38 through 44. The 50 largest donors donated almost $25 billion to charity in 2020. Uh, according to the annual report from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, these billionaires made some of the largest donations that they've ever made. Uh, Jeff Bezos pledged $10 billion, with a B, to combat climate change through the Bezos Earth Fund, which is one of the largest charitable commitments ever. Uh, Twitter founder Jack Dorsey set aside $1 billion worth of stock primarily to fund responses to the pandemic. Uh, 2020 was the first year with five $1 billion plus commitments, according to the Chronicle. Uh, the other two came from former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg and Nike founder Phil Knight. Uh, these are some pretty large gifts, but... In our text today, we're going to learn about the most famous donation in history. And it may not be what you think. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. This is the word of the Lord. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So, just to kind of reset the context for us again, as we've been walking through this text in Mark, Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. His authority has been challenged. He's been asked several trap questions. He taught on the greatest commandment. He blew minds with his teaching on Psalm 110 and great David's greater son. Well, immediately after challenging the scribes' limited understanding of the Messiah last week, he goes after the scribes again. And in this text, we see a sharp contrast. Our two points for the text this morning are these. Number one, prideful scribes in verses 38 through 40, and point two, a poor widow, in verses 41 through 44. So prideful scribes and a poor widow. Point one, 
prideful scribes. Look with me again at verses 38 through 40. So speaking of Jesus and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is Jesus simply calling it like it is. He's not politically correct, and he clearly doesn't care what the scribes think of him. He's literally on their home turf, in the temple, warning people about them. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people in our society today that aren't afraid to call someone out from the, the safety of their own home behind a computer screen. We call those people keyboard warriors. They aren't scared to talk when there's some distance and relatively no consequences for their actions. Not Jesus. He's in the temple. Scribes everywhere. And he's telling people to beware of the scribes. Jesus wasn't always politically correct. He says, beware of the scribes. And uh, what I want us to see here is that Jesus took false teaching seriously. He, he didn't say, eh, we're, we're kind of on the same team here, and th they're not pagan, and we're supposed to be unified, right? So I'm just not going to be divisive here. No. The same Jesus who prayed for unity in John 17 said this out loud. Beware of the scribes. Friends, there are leaders and popular movements within the modern day religious arena that you should absolutely beware of. It's not just Joel Osteen and Bethel. You should absolutely beware of them. But, unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there teaching false gospels which Paul in Galatians calls not a gospel at all. Now, I'm not going to go into depth on all of these here, but I encourage you to go watch a movie called American Gospel. We've talked about that in the past. There's actually two of them, American Gospel 1 and, and 2. Now, they're both great. It just kind of walks through a number of these pastors and churches, uh, so-called Christian leaders, that you should beware of. So... Jesus says, beware of the scribes. What does he say about them? First, he says they like to walk around in long robes. He's describing their prayer shawls. The scribes had special ones that touched the ground and had fancy tassels on them. In other words, they, they dressed up to make sure that everyone around them knew that they were holy, important people. I want to be clear here. This isn't Jesus saying that you're sinful if you dress up. Many people dress up for church out of a proper response, a proper heart and respect for God. That's, that's godly. That's honorable. That's not what these guys are doing here in the text. They were dressing up simply to show others 
how much better they thought they were than them. So they liked to walk around in long robes. Second, they liked greetings in the marketplaces. And again, this wasn't that they were just friendly extroverts who liked people to say hello to them. No. They liked people to address them formally with specific titles like Excellent One, Father, Rabbi. This was about them being recognized as being high up the totem pole of religion. Third, Jesus says they like to have the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at the feast. You see the trend here? They liked to be seen publicly and made much of. They wanted everyone around them to know that they were a big deal. Then, worst of all, look at verse 40. Jesus says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These guys were absolute scumbags, if you get the picture. Vulnerable widows would ask for their help in protecting their finances after their husbands died. And these guys would take their money instead. James chapter 1, verse 27 says this. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So instead of visiting widows in their affliction, these guys were scamming them. Sounds a lot like the televangelists today. They prey on widows by sending them holy water or prayer cloths and then asking for money in return. It's disgusting. It makes my heart rate go up even even talking about it, even thinking about it. But thankfully, it doesn't go unnoticed, does it? Jesus says this. He says, for those guys they will receive the greater condemnation. Do you see that? They will receive the greater condemnation. In crass terms, there's a hotter place in hell for those guys. That's what he's saying. Jesus cares about his flock. He cares deeply about the vulnerable to exploit the the flock of God and to misuse religious authority, thus distorting God's character, is repulsive to Jesus. Where we see this kind of thing happening today, we should call it out. We should protect the vulnerable. We should honor God. Remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about righteous anger? Jesus goes into the temple, flips over the tables. This is something to get righteously angry about. God's character being distorted by wolves in sheep's clothing. Beware. So, against the black backdrop of these prideful scribes, we see a contrast. Point two poor widow. Look again at verses 41 through 44. It says this. 
So he calls out the scribes. And then it says in verse 41, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So what's going on here? Previously, when the barrage of questions were coming at Jesus, remember that he was out in the court of the Gentiles, the large area of the temple. Now, Mark tells us that he's sitting down opposite the treasury. This would have been in the part of the temple known as the court of the women, where both men and women were allowed to be. In this part was the treasury, where they had 13 different, let's call them offering boxes, all for different purposes. And this by itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, after bringing his people out of Egypt, God commands them to take such offerings to build him a sanctuary. Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine uh, twined linen goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so... You shall make it. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29, we see that God gives his people instructions for tithing. And look at verses 28 and 29. So this is Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. It says, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So they tithe to take care of who? Levite or priest, and to care for who? The widow, poor, sojourner, the fatherless. In other words... Those in need, the vulnerable. So, they had these boxes set up in the temple. Thirteen of them for different offerings. And out of the tops of the boxes, they had these metal horns called shofars. I think I've got a picture of it there. That's the setting that Jesus is in. Look again at verse 41. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury box, the treasury, 
and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Brothers and sisters, do you know that Jesus sees our giving? And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. This is one of the reasons that we don't actually pass a plate here on Sundays. It's not about anyone seeing what you give. It isn't about an emotional response or a pressured response or anything like that. It is, on the other hand, an act of worship. Jesus sees you. And even more than the the physical motion, he sees your heart when you give. Let's keep moving on in the text. It says, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So it doesn't tell us the amounts for the rich people, but it says that they put in large sums. Like Bezos and crew, these guys were dropping in some coin. That's what the text wants us to see. If verses 38 through 40 that we read earlier are any hint, many of these people liked being seen and recognized for what they were doing. Remember, from the picture that we saw, these boxes had metal horns, like trumpets, that funneled down into these boxes. So think about that. Can you imagine someone putting in a large sum of money into that? Clang, ding, ding. Like You could hear it. That's exactly what the scribes wanted. Look at what Jesus says about this in Matthew 6, verse 2. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. He says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be, be, may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus is in the temple watching and probably hearing all of this go on. Then, the most famous donation in all of history. Not Bezos, not Dorsey, Not the rich with their large sums. A poor widow. And she drops in two small copper coins which make a penny. These coins, known as lepta, were the smallest denomination of coin in Palestine. Two of them equaled 164th of a Roman denarius, which was a day's wage for a typical laborer. So, think about this. What could this donation, what could this offering purchase? Next to nothing. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. So Jesus is observing all of this, and he calls his disciples over to him. This is a teaching moment for them and for us this morning. He says, this poor widow, 
She gave more than everyone combined. Maybe you're thinking, is Jesus bad at math or something? Those other guys gave large sums. She gave almost nothing. What's he talking about? She gave more? Did she put something in that we didn't see? Maybe she gave online or something digitally? What are you talking about, Jesus? She gave more? Then he explains, verse 44. He says, For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In other words, large sums don't necessarily equal generosity. And small sums don't necessarily equal stinginess. It's possible for someone to put in a large sum and still be stingy toward God. It's also possible for someone to put in a very small sum and still be insanely generous toward God. Also, do you know that God doesn't need your or my money? He doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. It's all his. We're just stewards. And he can give us money or take it away at a moment's notice. He gives us the power to even get wealth. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18. I love this. It's humbling. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. He says, he says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says here. He says, God chooses to use whatever gifts he wants to further his kingdom. He can use a small gift for a great purpose and a great gift for a small purpose. With a great gift, a massive organization may be set up, which is in constant financial difficulties and eventually goes bankrupt. With a small gift... A gospel or a New Testament may be purchased, which leads to the conversion of someone who wins many others to Christ, or is the instrument of a great revival, or for that matter, points a millionaire to Christ. He says Jesus is underlining in, uh, this in what he says, if we grasp it. If we grasp it, he would never be, or we would never be proud of the amount we get. I love that. Honestly, that gets me excited about giving. What's God going to do with your offering? What's he going to do with my offering? He can take even a small amount and do something great with it. It's not the amount that counts. You don't have to be Bezos for God to use your money. In other words, it's not about what we give. It's about how you give and why you give. This poor widow in the text is praised because she gave sacrificially. She 
Unlike the scribe who we read about a couple weeks ago, who Jesus said was not far from the kingdom, she seems to be loving the Lord with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. The text tells us that she has put in everything she had. Jesus, who's about to give everything he has sacrificially, is smiling at this woman. I can almost see him over there with a grin on his face, kind of fist-pumping and joyful about what this lady just did. He was pleased. So, why do you give? Why do you give? Again, it's not because God needs our money. It's also not because giving earns God's God's favor in any way. No. Jesus' death on the cross was the free and fully acceptable, pleasing gift needed for our salvation, for our favor with God. So, we don't give because it earns God's favor. But giving does please God. Giving does please God. Going all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel, we see this. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it says this. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering... He had no regard. In other words, there are offerings that the Lord has regard for. And there are offerings that please the Lord. Look a little bit later in in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. This is after Noah and his family exited the ark after the flood. Genesis 8, 20 through 21. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Noah's offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God was smiling at Noah's offering. It was pleasing to him. If you're a parent, you know how this works. Maybe you give your kids some pocket money, and they go buy something for you on your birthday. You still get joy from that, right? Even though it was your money that bought it, you're still pleased, and it brings you joy. There is such a thing as an acceptable gift that brings God joy, even though it's all His. Look at... Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, and a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Friends, even though it's all God's, He gets joy from our giving. We also give because we're displaying our trust of God. It's like Sabbath rest, right? We take one day a week to stop working, showing that we trust God to keep the world spinning without us. God will provide. He's our provider. We give a portion of our income to show that we trust him as our provider. When I cling to every penny I have with a death grip, I'm saying, God, I I know you gave me this much, but I really don't trust you for any more. I can only trust you for so far. Giving is about spiritual growth. Giving is about spiritual growth. One author gives six spiritual purposes that God has for money. So I'm just going to kind of read through these, but I've got them up here on the screen. One, God wants us to, uh, wants to grow us spiritually by growing our faith. Two, God wants to finance his earthly ministry through us for his glory and our good. Three, God wants to unite Christians who have needs with those who have surplus. Four, God wants to reveal clearly his infinite power. Five, God wants to help give direction in our lives. Six, God wants to fulfill his promise to supply our needs. So God uses our giving to grow us spiritually. He experiences joy and pleasure through our giving. And he teaches us to trust him. But God also cares how we give. Remember, many of the scribes gave loudly to be seen. I want to return to Matthew 6, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that... Your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If we're giving to be seen, Jesus says that's not the right way. So, what is the right way? Secretly, between you and the Lord. But also cheerfully or joyfully. 2 Corinthians 9-7, it says... Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And giving is a matter of the heart. Jesus tells us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Did you catch that? Our hearts follow our bank accounts. Our hearts Follow our bank accounts. Randy Alcorn says it this way. He says, My heart always goes 
where I put God's money. My heart always goes where I put God's money. I know this by experience. Several years ago, I bought Tesla stock. The moment I did it, I was very interested in that company. I read a ton about the cars. I read about Elon Musk, his business plan, his other companies. I noticed every Tesla on the road. I talked about Tesla with people all the time. Now, I'm not saying that investing in this or that company is wrong. Uh, It may be good financial stewardship, but the principle is this. You've heard the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. This is put your money where your heart is, but backwards. My heart always goes where I put God's money. Alcorn goes on to say, he says, I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. He says, I always respond. Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and in the poor and your heart will follow. Jesus doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. Now, I do want to give a slight caveat to that. I said earlier that it's, it's not the amount that counts, and we just said it's about the heart. Those are true. But I'll come back and also say it is about the amount. In 2 Samuel 24, verses 22 and 25, look what happens. 2 Samuel 24, verses 22 through 25. It says, Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king Aruna, gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king, meaning David, said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Do you see what King David said there? He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David knew that it was about sacrifice, not about the mechanics of the offering itself. He knew that he needed to offer something that cost him because that exposed where his heart was. Imagine a young 20-something who made, let's say, a quarter of a million a year working for Google. Has a a great benefits package, all he could want. He's about to get engaged. His girlfriend is excited. She sees him on one knee with a velvet box. He opens it, and in the box, a $100 ring that he got from an arcade hardly cost him anything. But it's the heart that counts, right? All analogies fall short, but you get the point. I'm not advocating materialism here. 
But when our hearts are all in, we sacrifice. That's the point. In King David's case, and in ours, the question is, what amount matters to you? That's what we see going on in our passage in Mark 12. The rich people were giving large sums, but they were giving out of their abundance, Jesus says. It was an amount that didn't matter to them at all. The poor widow, on the other hand, gave sacrificially. Her whole heart was in it. There's so much more that could and probably should be said about giving. And if this this topic pricks your heart and you want to learn more about all that the Bible says here, I highly recommend these two books. Uh, I've already quoted from this one, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Uh, It's excellent. It's been really encouraging and convicting to me over the years. Uh, The second one is Plastic Donuts, Giving That Delights the Heart of the Father by Jeff Anderson. Uh, Really helpful books on the topic of giving. So if you're interested in those, I think we've got a couple of extra copies in the back. Um, Highly recommend them. But before we close, uh, I want to try to be really practical here. Maybe some of you are, are asking, well, how much should we give? Is tithing or, or giving 10% of your income to the church, is, is that even biblical? Well, that's up for debate, but I think it's the wrong question. How much should you give? Well, here are some principles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul is taking up an offering, and here's what he says. He says, on the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So, how much should you give as you may prosper? In other words, in keeping with your income. Uh, We've actually forgot to set these out, I think, but we've got a handout that, we've got this document that we give out at our membership class each time, and it's a document called, How Much Should We Give? I'm not going to read all of it, but we think this is a helpful and biblical advice. And I'm just going to point out the practical considerations on the back of this page. And we'll have it out on the black table after the service. So these are some practical considerations. Number one, give to your local church first. A good application of what we see in Genesis, or Galatians 6.6 6, is that since your local church is your primary source of teaching, it should be the primary recipient of your giving. Two, give regularly and deliberately. Paul told the Corinthians to set aside money on the first day of every week. Giving to the church should not be a spontaneous decision. Instead, ideally with your budget in hand, carefully consider how much giving will enable the, the best use of your money. Third, Give sacrificially and cheerfully. As we read earlier, God loves the cheerful giver. And he calls all of us to take up our cross and follow him. So, use your giving to make possible a life lived in sacrificial obedience. Knowing that whatever you give give up pales in comparison to what you're receiving in Christ. Fourth and finally, seek wise counsel. We should not give to impress others. And yet... We are foolish to make decisions about money alone. Be transparent with at least someone 
at your church about your whole life, including how much and where you give. At the end of the day, giving is about God's glory. It's about our hearts and meeting needs in the name of Jesus. Here's the deal. Now, I'm going to say this out loud. I've never said it before, and I'll probably never say it again. I want us to be known as a liberal church when it comes to giving. (laughs) I would love for people to say that Santa Cruz Baptist Church, those people are so generous. And just to encourage you and to praise God here, that's already been happening because of free Christmas trees. Dollar car washes, the fire victim relief, our support for right-of-way, backpacks for foster families, cookies for Aptos High this week, and many, many other ministries. We are known as an open-handed and generous church. I want to encourage you all in that. I also want to say, don't let off the gas pedal. Let's go. God has been so generous to us in giving us his only son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. He gave up everything. It's our joy to reflect his character by being generous to others. And that's how we're meant to to be different from the prideful scribes. You see, they did things to be seen by others. We do things so that God can be seen by others. I'm going to say that again. They did things to be seen by others. We do things so that God can be seen by others. Santa Cruz Baptist, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray.